You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster House presents... Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. I love a good ghost story. My, my library, my personal library, has hundreds of them, many from the golden age of English ghost tales of the Edwardian and Victorian variety. But I like to know where stuff comes from. In fact, trying as best as I can to track down such stuff to its earliest versions is kind of an obsession for me. I still remember my delight in finding out that Pliny the Younger, the famous first century Roman lawyer and letter writer, included a spectacular archetypal ghost tale in one of his letters. I could summarize it, but I love it so much, and it's not a very long story. Let me just read this excerpt from you as translated by William Melmoth back in the 18th century. There was at Athens a large and spacious, but ill-reputed and pestilential house. In the dead of night, a noise resembling the clashing of iron was frequently heard, which, if you listened more attentively, sounded like the rattling of fetters. At first, it seemed at a distance, but approached nearer by degrees. Immediately afterward, a phantom appeared in the form of an old man, extremely meager and squalid, with a long beard and bristling hair, rattling the jives on his feet and hands. 
The poor inhabitants consequently passed sleepless nights under the most dismal terrors imaginable. This, as it broke their rest, threw them into distempers which, as their horrors of mind increased, proved in the end fatal to their lives. For even in the daytime, though the specter did not appear, yet the remembrance of it made such a strong impression on their imaginations that it still seemed before their eyes, and their terror remained when the cause of it was gone. By this means, the house was at last deserted, as being judged by everybody to be absolutely uninhabitable, so that it was now entirely abandoned to the ghost. However, in hopes that some tenant might be found who was ignorant of this great calamity which attended it, a bill was put up giving notice that it was either to be let or sold. It happened that Athenodorus, the philosopher, came to Athens at this time, and reading the bill, ascertained the price. The extraordinary cheapness raised his suspicion. Nevertheless, when he heard the whole story, he was so far from being discouraged that he was more strongly inclined to hire it and, in short, actually did so. When it grew towards evening, he ordered a couch to be prepared for him in the forepart of the house, and after calling for a light, together with his pen and tablets, he directed all his people to retire within but that his mind might not, for want of employment, be open to the vain terrors of imaginary noises and apparitions, he applied himself to writing with all of his faculties. The first part of the night passed with unusual silence, and then began the clanking of the iron fetters. However, he neither lifted up his eyes, nor laid down his pen, but closed his ears by concentrating his attention. The noise increased and advanced nearer till it seemed at the door, and at last in the chamber. He looked around and saw the apparition exactly as it had been described to him. It stood before him, beckoning with the finger. Athenodorus made a sign with his hand that it should wait a little, and bent again to his writing. But the ghost continued rattling its chains over his head as he wrote. He looked around and saw it beckoning as before. Upon this, he immediately took up his lamp and followed it. The ghost slowly stalked along, as if encumbered with his chains, and, having turned into the courtyard of the house, suddenly vanished. Athenodorus, being thus deserted, marked the spot with a handful of grass and leaves. The next day, he went to the magistrates and advised them to order that spot to be dug up. There they found bones, commingled and intertwined with chains, for the body had moldered away by long lying in the ground, leaving them bare and corroded by the fetters. The bones were collected and buried at the public expense, and after the ghost was thus duly laid, the house was haunted no more. Now, I'm sure you can guess why this story really grabbed me. It's got all the great ghost story elements, the troubled spirit, the bargain-seeking homebuyer, the grievances of the unrestful dead, and even the prescription for putting the spirit to right. But what about those rattling chains? So those didn't start out with Scooby-Doo, and they didn't start out with Scrooge and Marley. No, here we have a ghost trope that's nearly 2,000 years old. Surely that makes it one of the oldest ghost tales, right? Well, that's what I naively thought until I read the book at the heart of this episode. In The First Ghosts, author Irving Finkel brings us ghost stories that were more than 2,000 years old before Pliny put pen to parchment. 
It's an astonishing book, and I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. Be sure to check out the show notes where you can find links to this book, to Dr. Finkel's other books, and links to further reading on related materials. So, no, Pliny the Younger's story isn't the oldest ghost story. But given the content of the tale, maybe it's among the first chain letters? Monster Talk. Uh, Today we're talking with Dr. Irving Finkel. He's the assistant keeper of ancient Mesopotamian script at the British Museum. He's an Assyriologist, a philologist, and his research has included the study of ancient Mesopotamian culture, including magic, religion, and board games. And he's the curator of the largest collection at over 130,000 pieces of ancient clay tablets in any museum today. Uh, His books include works on cuneiform, ancient Babylon, and recently, The Ark Before Noah, a look at pre-biblical flood stories, and most recently, in the book we're discussing today, a book about the first ghosts. So welcome to Monster Talk, Dr. Finkel. I'm glad to be here. We are delighted and honored to have you. We certainly are. (laughs) Let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I'll put put more honorifics in the show notes, but I know our audience is going to be anxious to get to the ghosts. But I'd like to talk a little bit about what you do. Can you tell our listeners what an Assyriologist is and a philologist and how you got into this field? I think that'll be of interest. Well, to begin with, a philologist is somebody who works with words. And there are modern philologists and ancient philologists, and I'm an ancient philologist. And an Assyriologist is a person who works with and reads and translates inscriptions in cuneiform writing, which comes from ancient Iraq, from Mesopotamia. And it's the writing that the Sumerians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians used. And it's the oldest writing that we know about. And it was invented long before 3000 BC, maybe 3500 BC. And it lasted down to about the first century AD. So for well over three and a half thousand years, this cuneiform writing written on bits of clay was widely used and it resisted the alphabet for about a millennium before it gave up so to speak the ghost so the thing is these ancient peoples they're all extinct and their languages are extinct the thing is that they wrote on clay as opposed to the sort of things that other ancient peoples wrote on like parchment or wood or eventually paper which are very vulnerable But the clay that they used, once the signs have been written or impressed on them, lasted in the ground forever and ever. So when archaeology in the 19th century began in Iraq, in the ancient cities of the Assyrians, they found these clay tablets, the archaeologists, before anyone could even read them, they found them in great number and they realised they were writing. And one thing led to another and eventually some very clever persons deciphered the ancient script. And it means that today, um, if you are a lunatic like myself and spend your life doing this, um, especially in a place like the British Museum, we have records of all kinds to deal with these ancient people. So sometimes it's administration and house sales and private letters. Sometimes it's history and astronomy, astrology, mathematics, magic and medicine. And a lump of them, a group of these tablets, um, are to do with ghosts. And it's that resource in the British Museum that I decided to work up into a book because it's the oldest writing, definitely. And these are the oldest ghosts. 
that we can catch a glimpse of? Uh, I've worked with ancient writing systems myself and modern writing systems, but usually digital formats. So I haven't worked with anything like clay tablets in the way that you have. Could you tell us a little bit about how these precious artifacts are stored and how they're preserved and how you use them? Right. Well, the thing is, and they come in all different sizes, but the average size is about the same dimensions as a mobile phone and fit in the palm of the hand. And you can get 30 or 40 lines of writing, cuneiform writing, on both sides of a clay tablet about that size. Now, the writing itself, the most important thing about it is it's not an alphabet at all, which is what most people in the world use today. Of course, there are other systems, but it's not an alphabet. It is what we call a syllabary, where you have lots of signs for consonants and vowels joined together. So to write Karen, you'd have a sign Ka and one Re and one N. You wouldn't have sign, uh, signs for K-A-R-E-N as we do. You have a syllable system and you divide up the words into syllables, use the right syllables to spell the word and off you go. So it sounds cumbersome and it's tricky because the writing using clay had a special quality that it was impressed into the surface. Because when we do writing with a biro or a pen, you have a continuous line on a flat surface like paper. But in this case, the signs themselves, each one of them was made up of separate marks, separate components. So the sign for car, for example, has about seven different lines in it, each of which had to be impressed in the clay with the edge of the stylus. So you had vertical lines and horizontal ones and diagonal ones, and you use your stylus, which is a bit like a chopstick, you had the tablet in your left hand, you picked up the stylus and you impressed to write each sign. You had to know the different strokes in their different positions. So it was a brutal matter at school. It took a long time to learn all the signs. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. And eventually uh, the people who left school, who graduated, so to speak, were able to spell freely Sumerian words and Sumerian language and Babylonian language both of those dead languages use this writing system and that's what they did so we have these fossilized conversations and fossilized words from very remote times fresh to read now you asked about how we store them well the tablets are made of clay and in the main in ancient times the clay was dried in the sun or not directly in the sun, but in warm air, because in ancient Iraq, like modern Iraq, it's a warm country and a hot country. So for normal purposes, air-dried clay was sufficient for it to be usable and safe to, and so forth. But when tablets like that are in the ground, they absorb water. So when archaeologists excavate them, which they've been doing since about 1840, when they find them in the ground, they're often damp to the touch and very vulnerable to damage. So if you're the kind of archaeologist who's experienced, if you find a tablet in the ground and excavate it, you take it out very carefully and put it to dry on a piece of newspaper or something, and it will then go back to its handleable state. Sometimes they fired them in kilns, especially if they wanted something to last forever, which they had an idea about. And when we have fire tablets, they're often in perfect condition. So 
in the museum in London, where we have such a wide distribution of them, many of them um, over the years have been fired in a modern kiln because they did some experiments and they got a film, um, a, a, a kiln a manufacturer to build a model which would go up to a high temperature very slowly and then down again so that we could fire the tablets which um, have come out of the ground and been looked after ever since to make them more or less safe forever. So it's a big process, but when you change clay to terracotta, then they become really tough. You can bang them on the table if you really want to. Well, we've got numbers in the British Museum. Everything has a number on it. So there used to be these huge, big leather-bound volumes called registers where everything was written out by hand. Now, of course, it's done electronically. But every object has its number. Every object has a, a box to keep it in, which has a glass top, and it's in a specially inert environment, and they're kept on shelves. So that's how we look after them. And actually, if you come to London, I'll show you one day. There's a marvellous early 19th century library, which we call the Arts Room, which has three floors of bookcases on the ground floor. We keep all the tablets um, in their boxes on trays and about 130,000 of them are there. So it is wow. the most spectacular resource. If you are a person mm. like me who spent years as a kid learning this damned writing system and working with a professor, <laughs> writing a PhD, all this and that, eventually getting a job in that place. It's exactly like the chocolate factory in the famous children's book because you have keys for the cupboards and all these marvellous documents there for inspection. And the problem about seriology is there's never been enough people doing it. It's a rather a minority interest or a minority subject in universities. But the thing is, the collection is safe there and it always will be. And maybe one day uh, children at school will pack up doing the stupid things they do, like mathematics, chemistry, <laughs> and learn something real. Yeah. And come and help read these tablets. And there are plenty in America, in California, in Chicago, Philadelphia, Harvard, Yale, and so forth. There are collections there. And, of course, in Iraq, too. And the final point about this is that under the ground in Iraq, there must be many hundreds of thousands of tablets still awaiting excavation. So that is a comfort in a way that they're still there. And we don't have to worry about them. Well, if you don't mind a follow-up to the follow-up, it seems like this, <laughs> this field must then overlap quite a bit with archaeology. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious about if the tablets can last several thousand years, how hmm. do you know how old they are, because it seems like they could have been passed from one generation to the next or discovered and rediscovered. And okay. Well, that's, a, that's a, a jolly sensible question. There's more than one way. Um, sometimes if, if tablets are found on a floor in a stratified context in a building, and you know from the pottery and the seals and the other objects, the approximate period of the finds by association, you can say, well, this such and such a group of material comes from the 18th century, something like that, often not more precise, unless you have an inscription, which sometimes happens, which is very precise. So archaeology and context and comparative and typology tells you something. But when it comes to writing, we have the edge over archaeologists in a really big way because they're always saying, well, maybe it's kind of about this kind of period. But with tablets, they very often have the date written on them. And uh, this is extraordinary because um, legal documents, for example, 
um, are witnessed by local worthies who write their name and they put their seal on it. And the thing is dated by day, month and year. So when you can identify the year in question, you're on toast. Now, of course, all these dates, people like Hammurabi of Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar or all those sorts of kings, they are all very B.C. They all lived before the birth of Christ. And all the dates are what we call B.C. as opposed to A.D. So how did they name their years if they didn't know they were B.C.? Because we can say that Hammurabi lived 1798 B.C., but they didn't know they were. So how did they do it? And they had two rather ingenious systems. One was they named each year by a special event. So at the beginning of the year, when something happened, the the, the, um, agents of the king would let it be known round about that this year was going to be called the year in which we defeated such and such an enemy for the fifth time kind of celebration of military things or a big building in modern terms it might be that we built a new railway station or they built the car park for the supermarket or something like that they they picked on something in their own world which was important and the year thereafter would be named after it now that wouldn't be very helpful except that the babylonians had um, a rather welcome tendency to make collections of data in list form And some tablets have been found with all the names of the years of the kings written out one by one. So that is a marvellous gift. So we know each of the year names of, for example, King Hammurabi. So they can be put in relative order. And then all you need is one case where it can be tied in with some other evidence of which does exist, as I can tell you if you're interested. So that's one thing. They did it with a year name. And the other way was they had regnal years. So when Alexander uh, the Great was king in Babylon, um, his first year was Alexander year one, and the second Alexander year two. So again, they didn't know they would be C, but they had that alternative system. So what we inherit is more than one kind of ladder of chronological data, very exact, in order. And the thing that has to be fixed very importantly, of course, is what those dates correspond to in absolute terms. And there's all sorts of different ways in which that works. One of them is by mention of astronomical data, because they were very serious about astronomy and they collected very serious mountains of data about it, so that sometimes a year that we know can be dated by some position in the heavens, for example, or whether there was an eclipse and things like that. So you have a scientific bank of time data, and once in a while something links across, and then when it does click, then all the year names before and after fall into position. And then sometimes there's an overlap with evidence from ancient Egypt, where they also have chronological evidence, and you discover that the seventh year of such and such a pharaoh is the 28th year of such and such a king, and then they lock together. And it's a very um, exhaustive kind of investigation to put all these things together. And of course, the way it works is the evidence that comes from all these different places and all these different sources is not always compatible. So sometimes there's a problem. And then you might find there's a king called Kurigalzu, who was a king of Babylon. He was a Kassite. 
And there's a bit of an argy-bargy among scholars as to whether there were three kings called Kurigalzu or two. So if you have date formulae for King Kurigalzu, if you're not quite sure whether there were two or three of them, there you also have a problem. And so there are within my discipline of Assyriology and all that, people who specialise in this chronology. And when they date things, they have different frameworks, sort of a long or a short or a medium, depending on the interpretation of astronomical data, which itself is not always completely lucid. So it's a horribly complicated mathematical nightmare. And the really good news, as far as I'm concerned, is that other people do it, not me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd have to say, too, that there's always an argy-bargy among scholars. Yes, part of the person. There is, um, <laughs> there is but um, the, the, the kind of argy bargy I'm thinking about is someone who spent thirty or forty years in a laboratory with working things out perfectly and just about coerced everything into a framework, and then some mm-hmm. monstrous individual finds something else which shows that it's not correct. I mean, that does provoke a kind of argy. <laughs> hardly blame people. Uh, yes. No, not at all. <laughs> this is all fascinating and really interesting stuff. That I feel like we should start talking about ghosts. That's what everyone wants to hear yeah, about. Yeah, everybody wants to get and, spooky. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you you make some clear distinctions in your book between ghosts and demons. So could you talk a little bit for us about these two kinds yeah. of entities and how they were perceived within the culture of the time? Remember, we've got the Sumerians first. And then the Babylonians and the Assyrians, who were contemporary. So the Sumerians spoke the Sumerian language, and the Babylonians and Assyrians spoke the Akkadian language. So there are two languages, both written in this script. Now, the first thing is that the, the distinction between ghosts and demons in Mesopotamian culture are the general d- distinction between them. The same distinction applies everywhere, because ghosts are... Um, in, in, in the normal perception of the word, the element of a human being that survives the death of the body and goes somewhere and has a continuous existence in some form or other thereafter. So it is the remains, so to speak, the non-physical remains of a human being. Whereas uh, demons, devils and all those things, whatever you call them they were very serious in mesopotamia and they're nothing to do with sprites and goblins they are very feared entities with great powers and they were very dangerous they have no human component at all so they are a different kind of problem in fact in most cases for the professional exorcist the person in babylonia who knew spells to deal with difficulty to cure people to drive out things which made them ill and unhappy, demons, on the whole, were much more troublesome than human beings. And this can readily be defended because among all the tablets that we have to do with um, ghosts in Babylonia, there's a list of those, a bit like a couple of pages out of a phone book, because they had the tradition, they understood this, like everybody else in the world, If somebody died, their body had to be interred pretty snappishly. And that the other thing, the thing that made them Uncle George um, and nobody else, comes out of their ear or disappears from them and goes off somewhere, supposedly down there into the underworld beneath the world in which we walk. This was the basic Mesopotamian 
picture, which of course is shared by most of the religions of the world ever since. Now, not all of the dead obediently stayed there. And um, the thing is this, that the people who had to deal with the problem, what they did is they put together all the information they gathered from case studies, so to speak, all the things that happened in the past, what their teachers told them, what they heard about, about all the things about who might be a ghost, who the sort of person might be a ghost that they'd have to deal with, and um, they made a lovely list of them. So I don't know how many entries there are, about 35, something like that, because they had this understanding too, which is also a familiar thing in the modern world, that somebody who came to a sticky end is A, unlikely to rest peacefully in the world to come, or in fact the world where they should be, and B, when they come back, they're likely to hang around when they were alive. Now, this sort of idea underpins ghost narratives of all kinds, literary, commercial, invented and genuine in the world ever after. That sort of picture that the ghost has trouble, it has unfinished business and it won't rest until something is done about it. Well, this was what the Babylonian view was. And so they made a list of people who were killed by a falling wall, eaten by a lion, lightning hit them, they fell down a well and drowned, they died in childbirth, they died in battle, they died. There's a whole load of these cases. And anybody who died like that, especially if their body wasn't recovered, and they didn't have a proper burial, could be troublesome. So mm-hmm. the point I'm trying to make in answer to your question about the difference between ghosts and, and demons is that there's a kind of basic sympathy in the mind which looks at the ghost phenomenon in a way and sees that the ghost is troubled and the sort of trouble there could be because they have a sort of sympathy with the difficulty. And the general human idea was if you had a ghost who was troubling you, either you or someone who could do it better would come along and give the ghost what it needed, if they could, for it to release its attentions and go peacefully away. So this is um, an interesting thing. I describe it very simply, but in fact, the principle is very simple. And I think um, it underpins, as I say, the the human belief in or interaction with the the ghost environment um, in a very familiar sort of way. Demons are a different kettle of fish and, as I say, much more dangerous. But there's an important point that comes out of this listing, coupled with um, the other resources, which are omens, which describe seeing a ghost and what's going to happen. And all the rituals and all the correspondence and all the texts that are to do with ghosts, when you put them on the table in a big Lego castle, the conclusion is inescapable and very important, which is this, that people in that culture, the ancient Mesopotamian culture, down to about the time of Jesus, so to speak, they weren't like modern persons prone to say, I believe in ghosts or I don't believe in ghosts and uh, discuss this and laugh at one another for their alien views and have no meeting on any middle ground. That wasn't the point at all. Everybody took ghosts for granted. It was part of normal life. It wasn't 
the situation that if somebody saw a ghost, they thought that, that they'd had a mental block or they were hallucinating or they'd had too much to drink. And if they told somebody they'd seen the ghost, they wouldn't either say, oh, you must have been overtired or stressed or this kind of hanky-panky. On the contrary, everybody took the existence of ghosts, the mechanism that they could come back and trouble the living, absolutely for granted. This applies to the king himself all the way down to the boot boy. This was part of life. Now, the most important thing about this point, in my view, is that, as I see it, if you look at the history of mankind, uh, I mean, it sounds a preposterous thing to say, but if you look at the look globally at the human activity, ideas and history, then you have, in my opinion, this situation, that in the world at large, there was a period of time when taking ghosts for granted was normal and universal. And this reigned supreme for a very long time, probably since right near the beginning of Homo sapiens, all the way down, and in many parts of the world, not complex and sophisticated smug cities, but far-flung rustic parts of the world immune from the presence of critics, still does operate. And what happened among the so-called thinking and educated classes, if there are such things, is that the stratum across which the ghost belief, as I see it, the spontaneous and natural ascription to the existence of ghosts in the world, was directly confronted by religion of a monotheistic type, Christianity, Islam and Judaism, and all that went with those, and science. There were two forces which combated the easy natural and spontaneous belief in ghosts, which I think was primary, and drove it, so to speak, underground. So in the modern world, the situation is altogether different, that people hardly talk about ghosts. When they do, um, they're rather embarrassed. People don't volunteer their experiences unless they're absolutely certain that the person they're talking to is not going to laugh at them. And there's all sorts of complications about this belief system in our culture, in cities and all the rest of it. But as I say, walk through the far flung countryside in many parts of the world and you will find the same rule predominating. So the importance of the Babylonian evidence is it's a, to my mind, it's a well vocalized and unambiguous portrayal of the world in that state, in that particular state, and um, that they weren't credulous or stupid or, or making things up or trying to fool people who were going to read their tablets. It was just everyday life and everyday part of it. So you cover ghosts and demons and gods and sort of demigods. And what I didn't see, or I don't recall seeing mentioned at all, is any reference to jinn? And I just wondered if are the entities such as Jen mentioned in these texts, or is that something that emerged later? If if you look in the question of demons in Mesopotamia, um, they they consist of very big, famous, powerful, and horrible demons. Uh, people know what they look like and what their names were, and to some extent their history. And there are loads and loads of others who become increasingly faceless and difficult to identify. And some of those characters, so to speak 
are more like the jinn which you read about in the Middle Eastern world than not. But there's no precise equivalent because I'm not quite sure, in, in fact, how you would define a jinn as opposed to a devil or a demon, whether there is a working description or whether it's just a word in Arabic for that kind of appearance. But the important point is that the Mesopotamians, all of them, had a great widespread pantheon of gods. Um, on top, there were three big ones and lots and lots and lots of other ones, some of them rather obscure and local, but a whole mass of different gods, women and met a female and male with their various responsibilities and cult centers. So they were they were the good guys. They ran everything. They were the creators, made the world tick and made sure the animals reproduce and all that and all that. So you have them. And then you have a small group of gods who lived in the underworld who were equally divine and equally powerful, but they only could only operate down there. And they had their terrain where they ruled. And then on the earth above, you have um, uh, ghosts floating about. You have demons and devils, as I say. And sometimes we know what they look like and sometimes we don't. And it's kind of organized in the sense that when you read about it, you don't feel it's chaotic and nuts. You feel there's a kind of tidiness about their basic idea. And that if we're lucky, we'll all be OK. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a follow up question too, Doctor. I wanted to ask about a specific demon god who's very famous in the Western world, Pazuzu. But the exposure that most people have had to Pazuzu is in the movie The Exorcist. And uh, so I think we think, oh, he's a terrible demon who's behind everything that happened to that little girl. And yet I know, too, that in other cultures that there might be evil or bad spirits or gods, but sometimes they're worshipped and prayed to for protection and, and things like that. Can you tell us, school us a little bit about uh, Pazuzu? Because we just have this impression of Pazuzu as being the character in the exorcist yes well the thing is you had to get there right at the beginning of the film to see this pazuzu because it wasn't like plastered over the screen you had to be on your toes and of course if you go to that film as an assyriologist your interest is immediately pricked up now pazuzu um is one of a group of hideous looking things winged with a sort of distorted monkey face and teeth and claws and a scaly kind of body and altogether not a pleasant picnic companion. And as you say in the film, it was Pazuzu who got that girl good and proper. But the fact is, um, it's a slanderous matter. And as I've remarked more than once about this, that really it may not be too late to take out legal defamation steps. <laughs> you clear his name with some Californian law firm who wants to take on Hollywood, because we know quite a lot about Pazuzu. But the most important thing is um, that he was on our side for sure. And the reason we know this is that the most dangerous of all the demonic forces in Mesopotamia is this goddess demon called Lamashtu. Now, Lamashtu was actually the daughter of Anu in heaven, and she was a willful and destructive girl who um, did not do as she was told. And in the end, after some unspeakable crime, which we're not quite certain, was kicked out of heaven and banished and had to live in the underworld. Now, Mashtu had a lion's head and um, wings, claws, and a 
she was a frightful looking thing, very frightening. Mm. And she preyed on women in childbirth and new babies. That was her diet. And she was described in these blood-curdling poems as walking up and down the street sniffing um, to try and detect the blood of a, a birth or a baby and looking in through the windows and sliding in through the gaps in the door and having her evil way. And she is the personification, of course, of the very extreme danger to which women in partition were often subject in Mesopotamia or their children. So um, the exorcists, the real exorcists, not the people in Hollywood, um, knew what to do about Lamashtu. There were various things, complex rituals and what have you, but the simplest thing was to hang on the wall or on the end of the bed a likeness of this Pazuzu. And it is clear that Lamashtu, goaded into fury by her inner hunger and need, looks through the window and sees a woman lying in bed and thinks, aha, and then spots that somewhere suspended on the wall or the bed itself is a likeness of Pazuzu, and the very sight of Pazuzu is evidently quite sufficient to drive her to go somewhere else. So the thing is, and the evidence for this is quite certain. So it means that there was some history between Pazuzu and Namashtu, which meant that the sight of him was anathema to her and would immediately have her scurrying off into the darkness. And there are always of thought about it. My own view, really, based on what happens to people in the world, whatever they do, is that perhaps they were once married yep. and then had a very, <laughs> very difficult divorce. And I think that would explain mm. that engenders that sort of reaction in human beings. But leaving that aside, Pazuzu has been grossly slandered, and I am glad to, that I can oh. be among those who... Demonised. Free Pazuzu T-shirts are on their way. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. 
I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And um, I'm wondering if there are any people today who still have a belief in, in Pazuzu. I know that in some parts of the Middle East, uh, women who are pregnant will wear an evil eye to protect them. Oh, everywhere. Um, oh, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a, it's a very deep-seated and ancient matter, and there are all sorts of things, knotted wool and blue and, and amulets and beads, and they're all over the place. One can make an endless collection of what women do in this situation. Whether Pazuzu himself has survived like that, I don't know. There is a funny god in Egypt called Bez who looks a bit like Pazuzu, but people say he's nothing to do with him. But the thing is this, that sometimes amulets, when they're used, are buried afterwards, because they, as it were, they're contaminated. Sometimes they're very expensive, right. passed down in families. And you could imagine perhaps that, a, um, I mean, some Pazuzu things have been found in Syria a long way from Babylonia and were probably traded as being a powerful thing and, you know, useful to have about the house and what have you. But I don't know whether there are many people today who are deeply involved in relations with Pazuzu. I know a lot of women are sure. much more involved with Ishtar or Inanna. She has a wide following in the modern world, but I'm not sure about Pazuzu. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Is that coming out of sort of the neo-paganist type stuff, or are these actually still traditional uh, beliefs in Ishtar from way back? Well, I think um, it's, it's more that um, when cuneiform died out in the first century or so AD, it really died out, and uh, no one alive knew anything about the languages or what was written in it. And it was only in the 19th century when they started to excavate and they cracked the decipherment that some of the Sumerian stories turned out to be about this goddess Inanna, who then was the same as the Babylonian Ishtar. And they were rather striking stories. And Ishtar was the goddess of love and war and other things as well. And, and there's a lot of love poetry with Dumuzi, her partner, in Sumerian. And then later there's a thing about when she goes down into the underworld and what happens to her there. And a whole load of stuff about Inanna. And I think in the modern world, some of the books that have come out with translations and then stage productions and recitals and people um, bringing the text to life in different ways have created a lot of interest because she's a pivotal element in the identity of the female, so to speak. There's no question mm -hmm. about it. And um, she's an archetype goddess and heavily overlaid with physical attractions and an interest in love and so forth. So goes over big. I had a friend called Diane Volkstein who sometimes used to do presentations of the descent of Inanna on stage. I once saw her do it in the British Museum. She came and stood in the middle of this huge stage with wearing a white dress and something around her temples. And there was a guy at the back with a small drum kit and a flute, small drum and a flute. And she recited the whole of this Sumerian story about Inanna in English, in translation. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the room was utterly, utterly spellbound because she was a well-known storyteller and could, with her voice, completely 
hypnotize everybody into rapt attention but me too i was absolutely taken aback by it and it somehow through the transmission of a modern english translation in a modern theater in the british museum in i have to say a new york accent didn't um, in any way um, detract from the, the drama and the power of it and in fact for me it was very, very fascinating to to see and the, the thing about mm-hmm. it was the audience was full of ladies who um, don't normally go to British Museum lectures. I've never seen most of them before. And some people come to lots of lectures, so they become rather familiar. And they were all, as I understood it, rather inanna persons, so to speak. So there are all sorts of things that happen in the world. I was really rather pleasant when these gods who are supposed to be long dead and disappeared still have a bit of vibrancy in our modern existence. That's fascinating. Now, absolutely. <laughs> I can't overstate how much I loved your book. Um, and for listeners, if you find yourself with questions, I'm sure most of them are actually answered within the text. So please do pick up a copy and read it because it's great. I did want to talk about a couple of things here. One is, as the living person, when someone in your family dies, there were yeah. things you're supposed to do. There were these expectations of of, uh, of requirements that for for a peaceful burial. Can can you talk a little bit about what the normal behavior would be or expected and a, a little bit about how the bodies were buried and where they were buried? Because I found all that very fascinating. Yes, this is an important question because um, it is tied up with ghost trouble in general, because most trouble from ghosts came from a very simple reason. Now, if you take a, a house, for example, of about 1800 BC in Babylonia in southern Iraq today in a Babylonian city, then a comfortably off family of a merchant or something, they would have a large house built on the four sides of an open courtyard with accommodation for the immediate family and the grandparents and so forth. And then if you did what you're supposed to do and have lots of sons, then the sons get married, of course. So the wives come into the father's family, they build a bit more on and they live there and their children grow up all together and the family expands. Of course, occasionally people die off at the other end, but that is the general idea. Secondly, although there's a wide range of different kinds of burial treatment of the, of the dead, uh, the most common one was that they were buried. And in this sort of period where you had this sort of house, um, they were often buried under the courtyard. And this could be they, there was a simple dug out thing and the body wrapped in matting and buried there it could be that in some richer houses they had a corbel thing under the ground where you could go down and with as it were the latest stiff move the others up and put it in there and all manner of variations there were cemeteries there were other things as well um other sorts of burials but um that was a general one and the point about it which is so important for your question is this that when your father died the oldest son had the responsibility for ensuring that the dead down there in the nether parts of the universe got their regular offerings of food offering and cold water because the general perception was that life down in the underworld wasn't so comfy that the, the dead hung around in the gloom shuffling about their shoulders down living off clay and mud and um, waiting interminably for something unspecified and the general picture that you get from the literary texts in, in as much as 
people might ever have heard about it in their normal lives was it was every reason why somebody was down there might want to come away. But the point was that you had to supply them with what they needed. And I suppose they were grateful um, and it cheered them up down the other end. So in the place where people were laid to rest, there was a pipe set in the ground, quite a long one, which went down, down which these offerings were poured. That was a theoretical principle. And although they knew that the pipe didn't go 25,000 miles down to the middle of the world, that's how it worked. And um, the thing about where the actual ghost was, how far down it was, whether it actually could eat and drink or not, practical questions which a police officer might want to have settled before you could have the handcuffs removed, they didn't ask themselves. They had, as I see it, a kind of tapestry of interwoven traditions and ideas, some of which were not, strictly speaking, to a logician entirely compatible, but it didn't matter a hoot, because the general idea was that it was up to you to make sure that the generations who had gone had these sorts of things wherever they were, And the quid pro quo was that they would come to your aid, I suppose, A, to make sure that other ghosts didn't come and interfere with you and other things as well. There's a sort of business arrangement about it. And lots of the texts to do with um, troublesome ghosts have this format that there's a contract. Human beings give the ghosts what they want. And if they don't do that, if they forget or with the passage of time, they think, oh, well, I'll do it next week or any other human thing like that. Ghosts sometimes got annoyed. They got irritable. And one of their primary grounds in a legal sense for discontent and for action was this, that their offerings had not been supplied. And um, it's then they come back, then they start pulling people's hair and becoming a pain in the neck. And um, it's very important to do some ritual to assure them that we'll carry on with this as normal, not panic. You know, everything's going to be fine, sort of magic. And I think that is a seesaw of funerary responsibility and irresponsibility is, in realistic terms, probably quite a big part of the whole thing. Uh, But we we don't have diaries or something where day by day you have people's records but there are plenty of texts which show the eldest son or whoever was detailed by him to do it didn't do what he was supposed to and that riled the ghosts you know there's another thing about these ghosts which is i think um from a modern perspective well worth clarifying that the Babylonians had this view of the whole matter that they say that the, the ghost is the spitting image so to speak, is the best translation in, in modern English, the likeness of, but more than the likeness, the spitting image of the man, which I understand to mean that if you were a mild-mannered, ineffectual sort of drip, then your ghost is likely to be the same sort of character. And if you were jolly and round and cheerful, your ghost would have something of the same property, and things could get worse and worse through... Um, people who went out of their way to be a schmuck to um, killers, <laughs> Nazis, <psychopaths laughs> and all those things. And whatever you were in life, so you would be in death. So you have ghosts who are put out about their offerings, which is for other ghosts who were much more serious, much more dangerous, rather small beer because and they had other resentments and, and maybe they just had other resentments. I mean, it's just quite clear that ghosts often came back to where they used to live. And this is not in any way surprising, of course, 
but sometimes people were attacked by ghosts that weren't part of the family. I think the general idea was that ghosts mm-hmm. who, who were part of the family could be mollified by reviving services which had been slackened off or compelling them by the help of magical spells from a professional that the best thing they can do is go back where they belong and go away. So with a family-type ghost, or what you might call a local ghost, I don't think they were driven into desperation um, or despair. But um, at the other end of the spectrum, there were ghosts that could come and stalk you, for example, with the common human thing about you think there's something there and if you think there's something there once that's one thing but if you always think there's something there it's psychologically very dangerous and unsettling and they had things like that and they had ghosts that followed you everywhere and then they had ghosts that spiteful to you physically and um, hurt you and hit you and pulled your hair and, and spat at you and then there were ghosts who were really dangerous who when you were asleep could come in your ear because it's difficult to sleep with both ears covered up. I've tried this. It's quite difficult. And if you do it often, my wife says, what's the matter? We go to sleep. And I'm just trying to cover both my ears at once so that no ghost comes in. But it's very difficult to do. <laughs> so when they got inside you, uh, the consequences were very serious because there were breathing and chest trouble and throat trouble uh, as a doctor would look at it but also the people um, were driven mad they they lost their judgment they became insane and uh, there you have a ghost t- taking possession in a way that i'm mean, always i never in the book use this word possession because people are automatically associated with the, the widespread idea of what possession is but in fact it's an invasion by the ghost into the person's body and it has to be plucked out thereby through the skill of a professional highly qualified magician who would know compelling sort of spells that would have the effect well we've got a couple of questions that are related to everything that you've just said and uh, one of those is at the time what was the perception of ghosts how did people experience ghosts were they the object of terror were people fearful of them or were they more of a nuisance well, I think, but both. I think if you, you see, one of the things, one of the tools at our disposal are these marvellous omens where people in Babylonia who spent a lot of time trying to divine the future. And they did this by collecting omens. So if such and such a thing happens, it means such and such a thing. So the, lots of cultures have this sort of stuff. The Babylonians were very big on it. And one of their corners of um, activity was to do with when people see ghosts. And they laid them out very carefully. I think the way you have to look at these is that someone goes to a consultant, so to speak, about a ghost, and they elicit from them as much information as they possibly could um, to identify the ghost. So the question is the day of the month, whether it's morning or evening, and whether you saw the ghost in the house, in your bedroom, in the hall, in the in, in the yard, in the this, whether the ghost was the ghost of your uncle, the ghost of this, the ghost of that. And all these things had their implications, some of them very dangerous, and especially if the ghost spoke to you. That was really bad news. And um, so there are many, many lines. I mean, I don't know, several hundred lines of these omens, which in aggregate are supposed to cover all the possible things. And the exorcists, by inquiry, would find out which one it was. And it's clear from some of these that the ghosts... Um, familiar ghosts were recognisable as who they were. So this is an important matter. And one or two lines make it clear that they were wearing clothes, so they're not 
in sheets. I'm afraid it's going to disappoint everybody that they didn't go around going woo-woo in sheets. Um, <laughs> it somehow was the reflex of the person in... It's, it's not a lot of detail, but they weren't naked and they weren't described as being in a shift. Something mentions a belt and one or two other sort of features of normal clothing. So I think this is the situation that... Um, when you encounter a ghost for the first time, it's very startling. And if it, if it happens a lot, it becomes an irritant and then it becomes very irritating. And then you have to do, you have to get someone to help. So if it's a family ghost, the whole thing is on a certain footing where even if the omens threaten ill, uh, I don't think people necessarily believe them because they were family. But the strange ghost is a whole different kettle of fish and if you have somebody and you don't know who it is and it's their ghost after you, that is something that really needs to be addressed by someone who knows how to do this because it could be very dangerous indeed. For example, um, they're quite unanimous. So somebody who died on a battlefield, their body wasn't washed and treated and, and done as it should be in its culture. The enemy was slaughtered on a battlefield, battlefield and left there to be picked over by birds. Then... You could expect seriously that their ghosts would be um, unsatisfied and they, they might not go home to where they came from, like ancient Iran, but they might go to Babylon to get their own back on them. So you never know whether a strange ghost might not be somebody very vengeful from something like that or all manner of stuff. So right. the idea of the omens was to try and pin it down so that the exorcist would know what the best thing to do was. And he had a whole battery of specialist things amulets is one important thing with magic words on and then there's small simple rituals and complex rituals and something that goes on for a week and sometimes um, if it's a man being followed by a woman goes that they effect a sort of divorce proceedings and and she's banished like that and um, it goes from simple to complex and cheap to expensive at the same time but i think on aggregate the whole impression of it is that if it was a ghost of somebody in the family, then the people were not quite so jumpy as if it was an unknown ghost. Because the interesting thing is that um, people didn't live as long as they do now. So, so if you were a boy of 12, you, you might know what your grandfather looked like um, in his old age of 46 or something. But you, you wouldn't know anything about your great-grandfather or anything else like that. So memory of what people look like stops short at grandparents, I think. And so identification is not quite so straightforward in terms of what they actually look like. This is an interesting matter in another perspective, because um, hardly anybody knows anything about their great grandparents, even today. It is quite remarkable that you people know about their grandparents, but beyond that, very, very little. So, for example, if you are a doctor who wants to trace the recurrence of a genetically transmitted disease back in families, you can't because nobody knows who what great aunt so-and-so died of or how old she was, let alone her great aunt. And it is quite extraordinary how, with the passage of time, generations just vanish even from the world of the people to whom they are directly antecedent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess with modernity, we at least now we have photos and that sort of thing. But you're right. Oh, we do yeah. now. Yeah. yeah, it's quite a late, late thing after all. Quite. And 
the other thing is that with so many, so much of the world's population on the move and suffering and torn out of their lives all the way through the 20th century and now all the way through our century, that people who finally find refuge, for example, who escaped from Europe and came to Britain in the war um, as, as kids, grew up, went to university, got married and had children, never told their children anything at all about what had happened. Loads of, they just don't want to talk about it. And this phenomenon yeah. is surprisingly widespread. So the idea that a family is a repository of knowledge about their own history is complete illusion. It's very, very unusual. And with photographs, this is nothing to do with our discussion, but with photographs, there is the other matter that you often see in markets in Britain, um, late 19th century or early 20th family photographs with hundreds of pictures of people and no one wrote underneath who they were. And so what happens in a family is you have a grandmother who can tell you over Christmas, oh, this is her, this is him, this is this, all the names, they die and all the knowledge evaporates. And there are many, many old orphaned photograph albums Sometimes it's very touching to see with uncles and great uncles. You can see the whole family is there. Nobody knows anything about who they are. Postcards and mm-hmm. antique stores and, yeah. Well, I literally <laughs> inherited a big family uh, a collection of photos from my uncle who just passed. And yeah. I'm lucky enough that I have family to help ID the photos. But I still, even though I've got it in a document, I haven't put it, I haven't written it on the back of the photos yet. So I've got the same Write problem. It. Yeah. Do it tomorrow. Yeah. Write down everyone you know. Because it, it, somehow it seems to me tragic that the, 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 the force of nature is to obliterate. And um, it, it is really remarkable how effective it is, even when you don't have volcanoes and earthquakes. And Cultural entropy. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's very remarkable. Mm. I think it's probably due to the nature of how ubiquitous ghosts were. But I love that there were so many, I'm going to call them technologies for dealing with ghosts, which you cover. So you've got... Prayers and uh, I think what we would call apotropaic magic, the the amulets and charms, there's spells, there's rituals to see ghosts, rituals to ban ghosts. But the one that just absolutely caught my mind was the ritual of the ghost marriage. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, the basic principle is a man is haunted or followed by a woman. And the, the way they decide to deal with it is they make an effigy a bit like a scarecrow and there's a, even some information with a description of what one of these dolls look like a sort of um angular wooden sticks with arms and legs and with a bit of hair and a bit of robe and everything like that and what what, what happens is that there's a kind of banquet arranged with the man and this doll sometimes there's a banquet when they sit around and eat together with, I don't know who else is there, it doesn't say, but sometimes he has to lie in bed with this doll instead of his wife, who I suppose is um, out in the cow shed um, feeling resentful. And then <laughs> as a result of this, and the, the, the divorce is pronounced and the, the woman is banished and the object is buried. And the sort of marriage and divorce is regarded as a kind of legal, legally compelling um, fiction, so to speak, and it, mm-hmm. it rids the, the husband of this ghost. That is the outline of the thing on the text. But, of course, the, the great likelihood is that there is sexual jealousy 
involved under this that um, I didn't write about this in the book because I'm I wrote quite a lot of interpretive stuff and I'm nervous to overdo it because people think I made everything up so but I mean it would seem to me speaking now that such a ritual with a marriage like that and especially going sleeping in the same bed and then divorcing and banishing is likely to have it's not the ghost of a, a nobody that, that maybe it was a dead wife the first wife who was coming back or a lover who died or some even a woman for whom the husband was still grieving though he was married to another person so that the urge to take this form of of dispersal was not that you would use for all ghosts to drag out the old divorce thing more that this was a case where perhaps inquiry had established that this was the malaise that, that, that this woman whoever she was um, a real woman wasn't quite dead enough um, in the idea of of the husband or conceivably his second wife. So it seems to me that's the that's what you need to breathe into that composition. But it's already in itself quite fascinating. And I, I translated it carefully into English and just gave it as it is. Um, but I think talking yeah, now, that- it seems to me that is very likely because... Um, sexual jealousy is an unending human thing and it it is also true that a spouse can be jealous of their partner's previous partner dead or alive in in a destructive way for years on end and it might be something like that I think I think it's quite legitimate when reading these ancient inscriptions in general when we can understand the language properly and put them into a kind of english that makes sense to us it's quite legitimate to take as a as as an assumption let's take as the assumption that the human mind and person and motives and complexity and nature um, are the same as they are today in all their variety that babylonian man is no different from London man or Californian man, um, it, it's all this. Hold on, I have to say all woman before we get on the wrong end of a lowercase ourselves. <laughs> human being, if I can still say that, is still the same human being. And when you read that ritual, the idea of dressing up a, uh, this doll um, and going through all this sort of mock, like a puppet or something, it might seem ridiculous, it might seem humorous, it might seem obscure or primitive but it's none of those things i think now talking never occurred to me before but i I think it must be that that it's to do with an unsettled sexual jealousy which gets worse and worse doesn't get diminished i think that's one of the things that really comes across in your book very well i mean yes the topic is ghosts but and ghosts are maybe not as universally accepted now but within that context you see how these ghosts affects the daily lives of these ancient people. This is, you know, yes. 3000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, they were just like us, you know, they were just trying to get by and doing the things that they needed to do to work in a society, to work in a culture. It's just fascinating. Yes, I think so. And of course the, the, the other literature, which survives from them, which are private letters and um, poetry and, and literature show that homo sapiens is homo sapiens beyond any doubt and um i mean not not least um by virtue of the fact that that 
the human brain is perfectly capable of happily believing things which are mutually contradictory. And in the modern world, this is a squirmy kind of thing which people don't like to have to confront. But in fact, it is a general situation, and um, certainly in antiquity too. I mean, the thing about the big underworld all the way down a thousand miles below our feet and then something at the back of the yard, it sh- shows, if, if you look at it unsympathetically, that they were just just stupid. If you If you look at it sympathetically, you see that these were all facets of coping with the whole matter of what happens to our dead family, where they go and what their requirements are. And it's a sort of multifaceted way of, of coping with it. And then the multifaceted way of coping with it when it goes wrong and they come back. Right. I'd like to comment too, that uh, just talking about the ghost marriages makes me think of uh, modern practices in voodoo, where there are some people who engage in what are called spirit marriages and yes. they do that uh, because they're wanting to seek out good luck or protection or help with finances and and things like that. So it's just interesting to see these kinds of ideas evolve. Oh, yeah. Well, we also uh, talked about that in our – we covered Chinese ghosts, and there was this idea of ghost marriages in, in some of China culture too. Well, I think this is a this is really a ghost divorce. Yes, it's, yes, exactly. This is more of a, a, a get rid of. You see, also yeah. in the book, there, there's that remarkable tablet which has drawings on, where there's a ritual where the analysis of the problem is that, that what looks like a great grandfather, an old man, uh, comes back, and I, as, as I see it now, although I didn't write about this in the book either, that this old guy probably was um, a ladies man from all his life and thereby to be understood in the world to come rather put out and not to have a female partner and so came back disgruntled and I suppose started eyeing up girls in the street I don't know what but the thing is the, the exorcist who dealt with this made a figurine of the ghost and a figurine of a rather buxom female and what the plan was, the female would take this old Uncle George, or whatever his name was, um, away from the house, back down to the underworld, and live with him happily ever after. This is the plan. Um, and so not, so um, the, the extraordinary thing about this tablet is, as well as describing the manufacture of the two clay images and what they would be clothed in and so forth in their positions, made a drawing on the other side of the tablet to show these two figures in profile drawn in the clay with a very fine point and this is done in the the third century bc and the thing astonishing about it is that the 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 accuracy of the drawing so to speak is very high quality draftsmanship and the ghost is tall and his hands are held in out in front of him and his wrists are tied together, and the woman who's walking ahead of him has the other end of the rope, and she's literally taking him off, bound uh, bound, and uh, to follow her wherever she goes. And there's a ritual when they're buried in a little pit at sunset, the given things they need for the journey, and that's that. So um, this is a ritual of a kind which is often described, but the interesting thing there is the drawings are given of how they saw this ghost and how they saw the woman. And um, the, the cute thing about it, I have to tell you, um, which I didn't know when I wrote the book, is that um, 
I wrote there that this must be the oldest drawing of a ghost in the world, because where else are you going to find an earlier drawing, which is labelled as a ghost? Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, the long and short of it is it's going to be in the next Guinness Book of Records as the world's Ooh. oldest drawing of a ghost. So I'm rather bucked about this because there are no other cuneiform tablets in the Guinness Book of Records. So I think this is rather neat. And um, wow. the, actually, the book itself is going to be reprinted as a paperback in October. Oh, nice. Mm, it is good. I don't know how many hardbacks are left, but um, they, they're going to reprint it. Uh, and um, I wanted them to put on the back cover, as seen in the Guinness Book of Records, but they didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> said, I, I don't think that's quite the image we're looking for <laughs> i have to say i'm wrong <laughs> one thing i remember uh, learning was that the king james bible was written to be using archaic text and, and, and the way that it was written didn't actually match with the way people talked at the time so it was kind of like an appeal to antiquity and then i had learned about uh, fairy forts being an explanation for you know, burial mounds and uh, you know, just basically around the world that there's this idea that you appear like the present is not as interesting and magical as the past. And so if you need magic, you go to the past. And to find out uh, in your book that some of the uh, magical spells or mumbo jumbo had actually just repurposed antiquated writing was, oh, it was a revelation. Could could you talk about that just a little bit? Well, yes, um, it it is quite extraordinary because the simple t- technique to get rid of ghosts was to wear an amulet to, to get rid of them. But the amulets themselves are rather interesting because one of them reads like this, and to me it goes, Zizig, Nuedesh, Saggish, Luabdash. And these four words are written on an amulet made of obsidian. And the thing is, Zizig, Nuedesh, Saggish, Luabdash is not really Sumerian, and it's certainly not Akkadian. And um, I eventually came to the conclusion that it was Sumerian, which had been made to look much older than it was. It had been sort of oldified. So they'd added these funny endings so that when people heard it, they would realise it was Sumerian from, you know, before the flood or something like that. It it was redolent of ancient sounds. It's a funny principle. But at the same time, the scribe who, um, well, rather the, 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 the cutter, who put the signs onto this hard obsidian, which is very, very, very tough material. He wrote the signs, Zizig and Nuet and so forth, not in contemporary script, but also in very, very ancient-looking signs. So he produced an object that in ancient times, say in 700 BC in the market, cost a lot of money, or silver, and um, be a very precious object indeed, and the person who bought it would think oh, it was already thousands of years old. I mean, I don't think he was defrauding him. He would just sell it to him. But the thing itself looked it, remarkably, uh, it, it would have looked at the time that it was already ancient as it is now. And that's one thing. And it's obviously a deliberate a deliberate mystis- mystification and and. Um, the press with a slightly commercial bent, but to sell, to make something very costly, which was really going to do the job. And the other one was even more bizarre because there's a group of spells which occur on many amulets against evil ghosts. And there's a group of amulets um, from the first millennium BC, which are 
also made of stone, and they had to get rid of evil ghosts. These are this is good ghost magic, and we have a group of these hand-carved amulets with these magic words on, where the words aren't quite the same, they're slightly garbled one to the other. The interesting thing is that nobody at the time who used these words would have known what they meant. They were valued for their exotic sound, like this. One line goes like this, Zipshilach, Numelach, Shitilach, Guchlach. So those words are not Sumerian or Akkadian at all, and that's the best written line, but other ones have strange kind of variants, which are because people heard them and they didn't understand them and they got slightly garbled. So this is it. These are magic words prized by exorcists for use against ghosts because of their exotic sounding nature. Now, the thing is, a freak free discovery was made of a clay tablet from about 2000 BC with one of these words on, which showed it was a personal name. It wasn't um, a magic word originally. It was the name of a guy who was a dog handler who uh, was in Mesopotamia in southern Iraq with these fierce hunting dogs. He'd been brought over the border from ancient Iran where they were bred. And this guy, Zibshilak, was on a tablet um, with his colleagues to get his wages. So in about 2000 BC, there was a list of these foreign blokes with their strange names in one column of a tablet. And somebody a thousand years later must have dug up this tablet. So what on earth are all these names? Very bizarre. And eventually they passed into the repertoire of professional magicians who thought they were an ancient spell in an unknown language. So this, that is the oldest example of mumbo jumbo, which is a well-known magical principle. But unlike mumbo jumbo, or most examples, we actually know where they come from. So that is quite an interesting side pocket in the history of magical writing. With the addition that he went from being a handler of hounds to hounding the dead. Well, you could say that was <laughs> this wasn't a, this was a mastiff and thought that they used for security purposes. So that in 2000 BC, they had security guards from over the border, and no one could handle these dogs except them. So, wow, that is yeah. so, this is so Amazing. fascinating. Thank you so much for taking oh, time to talk to us about this stuff. This is so great, and for doing the pleasure. work, and for doing the work. It's uh, a pleasure. I will add to our, again, yes. to our listeners. I know we, 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 we've run a little bit out of time here, but Dr. Finkel also has done a lot of work on ancient board games and gaming. And uh, you've actually resurrected a game from that period of time. And, yes. and, and, and you can actually buy this in the stores now. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Love. Very cool. Thanks. Very cool. So, Doctor, just one more question that we yeah. ask all of our guests. And that is, what's your favorite monster? Ah, well, I have one simple answer for this. Um, it's the drawing of Jabberwocky in Alice. Ooh, nice. Oh. <laughs> because I read Alice in Wonderland a thousand times. When I was a child, the, the, the drawing that Tenniel did of that monster frightened the life out of me when I first saw it. And it's yes. left a, a residual kind of fear. And it's rather interesting that when Tenniel who was the artist employed to illustrate Alice and Through the Looking Glass, Carol wrote this funny poem to go with it in mock English, old English. And um, it had to have a drawing. And Tenniel went to town on this monster. It's absolutely fantastic. And um, 
the publishers thought it would frighten all, all the little girls who were, were going to read it. So they sent around a letter. And I think what happened was, if I remember correctly, that the mothers were appalled and were very frightened. And then the little girls thought they were marvellous. So that's what usually happens in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. so anyway, Jabberwocky is a pretty opium kind of vision monster. And um, anyone who's never seen it and thinks they know all about monsters should have a good look at that drawing. It's really something. It is. And I, I guess that the way good that poem, it is a fantastic answer. And I, I think the way that poem is is used in the book, where you have to then go in and decipher what the different words mean to sort of get, yes. get any sense of it. That must have really stuck with you, that the, the appeal of trying to decipher yeah, the yes. languages. Yeah, Yes, that book had, had a marked effect on me in many ways. And those that point is certainly one of them. I read it and read it and read it, and I still often do. But that that's my favorite monster by a long way. So fantastic. Great answer. Yep. Well, I hope that this conversation will help our listeners stay curiouser and curiouser. Indeed. <laughs> monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with the seriologist and author, Dr. Irving Finkel. His most recent book is called The First Ghosts, and links to that and his other writing are in our show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Therapist Uncensored, Subtext, and Small Things Often. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. At Monster Talk, we believe in science and critical thinking, and we believe in you. Thanks for being a part of the Monster Talk experience. Monster House presentation.
Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 